well, beloved listeners, while the uh, the world's attention gets drawn into conflicts in Ukraine, Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria, there are many other wars we rarely hear about. But my next guest is a journalist and author who has made it his mission to cover these, well, these ignored wars. Anjan Sundaram has previously written two books on African conflicts, He covered uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. His latest work is Breakup, a marriage in wartime, which is uh, based on his time in the Central African Republic, a country which since uh, throwing off the shackles of French colonialism in the the 1960s has uh, suffered five coups, all sorts of foul play, fighting and massacres. How many have died there? Well, as he points out, nobody has counted. But in his new book, Anjan not only tells the untold stories of the place in 2013, but uh, the personal cost of being a war reporter and its impact on his marriage. Being peripatetic, he joins me now from Mexico City, where he's currently based. Welcome to our little wireless program, Anjan. And first of all, tell me about this uh, what this place that you describe as a country in the high seas and as a place of perpetual rebellion. So thank you, Philip. Thanks for having me, and thank you to everyone for listening in today. Um, indeed, the Central African Republic is, it can feel like a piece of oblivion. When I asked editors to fund my travel to the country to report on the war there. Uh, Many of them asked me which Central African Republic I was referring to, not realizing that the country was called the Central African Republic itself. Um, The the war there began in 2013, round about when I traveled through the country. And a, a colleague of mine, whose name is Louis, and I both heard rumors of genocide, and we, we could not find out more than that. We heard, you know, rumors and little bits of information about a massacre here, uh, you know, 100 people possibly killed, but we couldn't find out who had done the killing, why, uh, who had been killed, and when, all the basic sort of information that journalists look for. And so we planned a trip and traveled through the country as this genocide or what ended up being ethnic cleansing of the Muslim population was being prepared. And we drove into villages and towns and small cities as uh, where massacres had just occurred, where massacres were happening, and uh, where a massacre was once even announced for the next morning. And we documented these killings of, you know, through much of the country, which was not being reported on uh, at the time, and even Doctors Without Borders, which usually is on the front line, was calling us up to ask us where they should send their doctors, uh, because there was so little information in the country, and radio, radio station antennae had been destroyed, meaning information didn't get out, so we had to go in. You make it clear that uh, this remote country is, um, well central to much conflict. And uh, to my astonishment, I learned from you that the notorious Wagner Group is mining diamonds and gold and uh, using that money, hundreds of millions, to uh, 
purchase equipment for places like Ukraine. Indeed. Uh, so traditionally, France was the colonial power in the Central African Republic. And even after independence from France in 1960, the French government still you know, orchestrated coup d'etats and determined who would lead the Central African Republic, even once flying in a future president uh, in, a, in a French military aircraft and installing him as president of the country. And France still controls the Central African Republic's money, its foreign reserves. So there's still, you know, strong French influence. But when the war began in 2013 uh, by Muslim rebels who were seeking to take back and recapture their past glory of the old sultanates that the French had destroyed, defeated in the 19th century, uh, these these Muslim rebels succeeded in taking over power, and though they lost power soon after, they did take out the French, and that left a void in the country, a void that Russia has now filled. And the notorious Wagner Group is uh, mining diamonds and gold, uh, providing security to the Central African president, uh, Tuadera, and uh, in, in in return for providing security, it's it's gained access to lucrative, rich uh, diamond and gold mines across the country that it's using to generate profits, as you say, to recruit uh, and purchase weapons for the war in Ukraine. At the start of the book, you're living in another remote place in nor in eastern Canada with your wife, Nat, and, uh, and baby daughter, but you were drawn to the Central African Republic why? You know, that's it's a deeper question. I think uh, I've been drawn to the war in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Central African Republic. Um, the first instance was when I was a student at university. I was studying mathematics at Yale. And at lunchtime one day, I opened the New York Times in the lunch dining hall. And I found, to my surprise, in the middle of the newspaper, buried uh, somewhere in the middle of the newspaper at the bottom of the page, this small article about Congo uh, that said 4 million people back then had been killed. And it struck me how this news was, you know, sort of lost in the newspaper and wasn't on the front page. To me, it seemed obvious that this, uh, that these kinds of stories and these wars should be on the front page. And so the sense that, you know, many people are suffering from the wars and conflicts in, you know, the Central African Republic and Congo, and yet they don't get attention. Uh, that troubles me. Um, it, we all know that, you know, when violence is perpetrated, if the perpetrators of that violence feel that they're not being watched, then they're, they're in a position to, uh, you know, be far more violent than they would otherwise be. And I think as journalists, the least we can do is at least show up. And just by showing up, just by giving the perpetrators a sense that they're being watched, I think we can limit the violence that occurs and that people suffer. And, John, there are so many horrible moments in the book, but uh, one that absolutely appalls me is you're waiting for a massacre to happen at a church where uh, thousands of people are hiding. Tell me about that night. So we had, we had arrived in this uh, town called Buka, uh, me and my colleagues, uh, we were a team of four, a driver, 
a local Central African reporter, Thierry Mesongo, my colleague, Louis Mudge from Human Rights Watch, and myself. We arrived at this town, Buka, where we had heard rumors of a massacre. And like in all the places we visited, we often slept at the church. Uh, you know, we benefited from their hospitality. And so we drove up to the church grounds and we found 3,000 people taking refuge on the church grounds. And right as we drove up, a government truck also drove up. A soldier got off the truck. And in this surreal conversation with uh, the nun, an Italian nun named Angeline, he warned the nun that if everyone was not cleared out of that church ground by eight in the morning the next day, he would come and kill everybody. And so he had announced this massacre. And my team, Louis, myself, Thierry, we called uh, government officials, we called embassies from all the Western powers, the US embassy, the French embassy, we called the United Nations. And when we told them this massacre was about to happen, and they all, you know, just replied and said, uh, well, Central Africans are are being killed across the country every day. So why should we intervene for these people? And we can't intervene. And so the massacre seemed a foregone conclusion. We decided to stay in the church that night. And at some point in the middle of the night, my colleague Lewis called his office, Human Rights Watch in New York, and told them that we were in the church and the massacre was going to happen. And so Human Rights Watch then called the White House and uh, the White House called the government and said, you know, uh, if anything happens to our citizen, it's going to be uh, a big problem for you. And so the attack was called off. And it was shocking to us that 3,000 Central Africans who were taking shelter in that church did not matter as much as one American life. And it, it, it sort of showed us in, this, in it was a very stark example of how uh, some lives matter so much more than others. One American life matters so much more than 3,000 Central African lives. And, the, and that brave nun broke down because she had tried to save people from a massacre before and it didn't work. She couldn't even, you know, rally support from the Pope. Indeed, three months before then, uh, 180 people had been killed in a massacre. And she had called the Pope to intervene. And to her, calling the Pope was akin to calling God. And so she had called, you know, the highest power that she knew of to intervene and save these 180 people. And the Pope had not been able to. And so she had reconciled herself to the fact that, you know, to the idea that nothing could be done to save these people. And then, and yet we drove in and one American was able just by his presence in the church to save 3,000 people. It was, he, he had done, a, in, in some ways, he had saved the, his, the, many thousands of lives, but to the nun who had put herself, you know, had made herself a human shield to protect these people, it was distressing to know that the power and the ability to save all these people exists in the world. It's just that many of the embassies and foreign governments won't use that power because they don't consider Central Africans as worthy of saving. The power of his satellite phone versus the power of her prayers and pleas. Now, you meet another significant religious person, a Polish priest. Indeed, his name was Mirek. I met him in the west of the country. And a real inspirational figure when, when, when we... He was the abbot in a town called Bois, which used to be a French military garrison. And when we arrived in Bois, 
uh, he, t- he told us that, you know, the town had been attacked about uh, you know, 180 kilometers to the north uh, or 200 kilometers to the north, a town called Bahang. And he said soldiers had attacked the church in that town and they had stolen the door for its wood. And now, as a result, the priest in that town was sleeping in the open without a door. The church altar was also exposed. And he said, he told us, how can this be? And, and you know, so he had a new a new door made uh, by the local carpenter. He'd loaded it up in his pickup truck. And he was about to drive through extremely dangerous rebel territory to go and install this door in the church to show the soldiers in that town that the priest was... Uh, accompanied, was protected, and had support. And so I asked if we could join him. And as we drove through the rebel territory to get to that town, the uh, the abbot, Mirek, he would stop in every village and honk. And the village would be abandoned because people, upon hearing our car, our engine, uh, would just run and hide, not knowing if we were the government come to ambush them. So the, the abbot honked, and someone would run out from behind from hiding. And run up to our car and thrust a piece of paper into my lap. And on that page, in neat handwriting, uh, were the names of all the people who were sick, what medicines they needed, what food and what water uh, who had been killed. And uh, the abbot would take all these sheets of paper from every village in that rebel zone. He would take all these sheets back to the city and present them to local NGOs, uh, nonprofits, to tell them where help was needed. And it struck me that, you know, in our age in uh, of Twitter, where we feel inundated with information, where we think we know everything about the world, that these places still exist. This is how war correspondence is still conducted by one brave person and by hand, collecting information by hand. And this is still necessary in wars such as in the Central African Republic. This is Late Night Live, and my guest is Anjan Sundaram. And we're discussing his book, Breakup, A Marriage in Wartime. In the book, you uh, take the unusual path of, well, of discussing your wife and baby. And in the narrative, uh, how they give you a sort of, uh, well, the courage to explore the limits of the war. Why did you decide to tell this part of your story? Well, you know, when when I'm watch a good documentary or read a book a good book of reporting reportage i often wonder you know why is this journalist obsessed with this character with this story who is this journalist who who were his parents did he lose someone he or she did they did they lose someone uh what is their life story and in traditional journalism uh reporters are not encouraged to speak about themselves and yet i think it's essential to speak about how important for example, in my case, how important my family and my sense of home was. Because often in driving through this war, I was afraid. And often I thought about turning back. And I needed in my mind a psychological home to which I could return. Even if I never actually returned, I needed that sense of home, uh, the sense of uh, love for my family. Uh, it was essential to me to give me the courage to then decide, you know, I'm not going to return home. I'm going to take two steps forward and see how far and how close I can get to a massacre or to the front line of the war. Well, it makes, so I, it, I makes, it makes your book very different from the simply hyper-masculine accounts, doesn't it? 
completely. I think you know there, there's this macho attitude among journalists that we you know we make sacrifices to report on other people, and yet we sacrifice a part of ourselves. And until recently, uh, in journalistic circles, we we haven't spoken about the costs and consequences of doing the kind of work that we do. And I don't pretend to have an answer for how we balance work and you know our family lives, but. My book is a small contribution to at least telling my story and how it affected me so that as a community of journalists, we can all be more open and transparent about it and help each other. Over the decades, I've spoken to many correspondents who've uh, been to Helen back, often bringing back with them PTSD. Have you been afflicted? A little bit. Um, I think the the bigger, uh, the more difficult uh, fact to handle was the fact that my, my ex-wife now, my, the, the woman I was married to, who was also a war correspondent, suddenly uh, didn't see a future with me. And that was because of my work. And she knew exactly what work I had done. She knew exactly what the job entailed, having done it herself. And yet, for some inexplicable reason, she stopped uh, believing that we could be a family and, uh, you know, uh, to me, it was inexplicable. Obviously, to an outsider, an observer, it may seem quite understandable. But uh, it was very difficult for me to to deal with, uh, especially being a father and having to under- find new ways of being a father to my daughter without being physically present around her every day. It's interesting that you go back to a remote Canadian area where your wife, where your wife is from, and uh, you're trying so hard to settle back, but uh, you couldn't manage it. Yeah, um, I I tried to integrate myself into the local community, but I I, I was just, you know it's it's hard to explain. I was just uh, too much of an outsider, and uh, the work I did just didn't fit with that conservative. It, it's a small town, the town uh, we lived in. It's called Shippigan. It's 2,500 people. It's on the Atlantic coast of Canada. The, the, I, I went to a therapist, I remember, and the therapist said, oh, my God, if I had lived through what you have lived through, I would be on the floor. How are you sitting on the chair in my room? And I just felt that, you know, the people in that place, you know, including my ex-wife once we moved there, just stopped understanding uh, what drove me to do the work that I had done for the last 10 years of my life. And uh, the the sense of mission and purpose that this war correspondence gives me. Let's. You mentioned earlier that you started life as a mathematician, and now here we are dealing with uh, well the calculations and miscalculations of your professional life. Tell me about your time as a mathematician. It was a beautiful endeavor. You studying mathematics. I studied abstract algebra which is the is the mathematics of creating new worlds you 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 write up axioms you write up rules and you try to see what worlds you can build and you make up these imaginary worlds that may or may not have any practical function or use um and you really do the mathematics for the beauty of it and it was in- incredibly beautiful but something nagged me when i was doing mathematics i kept wondering uh, of what use it was to all the people in the world who uh, were suffering or were in conflicts or the refugees, what did my work do for them? And it, so this question kept nagging at me until I you know, you know, decided to go out to Congo 
and uh, see what small contribution I could make for myself. Um, in some ways, writing and telling stories feel, feels to me quite similar to the mathematical process and experience um, that I had known. And so as dissimilar as they may seem, to me they're quite uh, connected. I find it so odd that someone who was heading for a job at, uh, well, Goldman Sachs or, or McKinsey's finishes up in places like Rwanda. In, <laughs> indeed. I, I find, you know, comfort with numbers, uh, comfort with an, analytical uh, uh, challenges and uh, a desire uh, to tell a story. I think it's a, it's a useful combination and it's served me kind of unusually well in, in, in Central Africa. Uh, it's given me certainly a uh, unique perspective on the conflicts there, on the people uh, living through these conflicts. And, uh, and certainly, it, you know, the fact that I've, I turned down the jobs at Goldman Sachs and, you know, uh, meant that the stakes were somewhat higher for me because I had to make use of my time in a useful way. While we've still got time together, I'd like you to tell me the sad story of Camille. Yes, Camille Lepage, uh, a very brave young French woman who is a photographer in the Central African Republic. We ran into her in Bangui just before we were traveling into the rebel zone. And she asked if she could come with us and we didn't have space in our car. Uh, a few months later, uh, Camille did find a way to meet the rebels, uh, but shortly afterwards she was found dead in the back of a pickup truck. And she left behind a legacy of very beautiful, empathetic photographs uh, from the Central African Republic. Her mother, Marivonne, has now set up a foundation to support photographers. And her legacy, you know, the work that she did uh, lives on. And is an inspiration to many new, you know, many new stringers and freelance photographers. I can imagine the grief you must have felt when you heard the story. Now, you've argued that to change what wars are covered, we need to uh, reverse the, uh, well, the colonial ways of uh, producing and delivering news. Speak to that. Yes, indeed. It, it strikes me as odd that news from the Central African Republic must travel to London or New York before a Nigerian can receive that news. And yet Nigeria is relatively close to the Central African Republic. And so I think that countries, middle-income countries in the global south, countries like Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, India, uh, with large economies, need to invest more in sending reporters out to their neighbors when conflicts occur or when news is occurring to report on them from from the perspective of the global south and i think you know for too long there has been a criticism of western news media for not covering countries like the central african republic i think those criticisms are valid but i think uh, you know we've reached a point where the global south needs to take action and step up and you know fill the void of news that the west is not uh, that that the west has left behind We've been privileged, dear listener, to hear the voice of Anjan Sundaram, journalist and author of uh, Break Up, A Marriage in Wartime. He's also the author of two other books on Africa, Stringer, set in uh, the Congo, and Bad News, based in on his time in Rwanda. And uh, the book is coming out with New South Publishing. Anjan, thanks for coming on. 
Thanks so much, Philip, for having me. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 